Spotify Live has all of your favorite music, and you can listen for free. Whether you hit play on one of our hundreds of curated music stations or create your own custom artist radio station, you'll find the music you love on Live by Live. Visit LiveXLive.com or search LiveXLive in the App Store or Google Play and listen for free now. This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Podcast. On Wednesday, a Facebook oversight board comprised of journalists, activists, and lawyers upheld the social network's ban of former President Donald Trump, ending any immediate return by Trump to mainstream social media, and renewing a debate about tech power over online speech. Decision day this morning in a Facebook face-off with the company's independent oversight board upholding the decision to keep former President Donald Trump off the platform, at least for now. But the board, a kind of Supreme Court for Facebook, says it's not appropriate for the company to just make the ban indefinite, giving Facebook six months to review its decision. According to the New York Times, Facebook's oversight board, which acts as a quasi-court over the company's content decisions, ruled that social network was right to bar Trump after the January insurrection in Washington, saying that he created an environment where a serious risk of violence was possible. The panel said that the ongoing risk justified the move. But the board also punted the case back to Facebook and its top executives. It said that an indefinite suspension was not appropriate because it was not a penalty defined in Facebook's policies and that the company should apply a standard punishment, such as a time-bound suspension or a permanent ban. The board gave Facebook six months to make a final decision on Mr. Trump's account status. What the hell is supposed to do, you moron? Well, the Trump decision is indeed important, and his words do carry a clear and present danger nearly every fucking time he opens his mouth. Let's be honest with ourselves. Donald Trump is not the problem here. Ban him, ban don't ban him, who gives a shit? Whatever. He'll just find another way to scam and lie to his MAGA faithful. None of this is happening in a vacuum. This is happening as Trump's voice has faded since leaving office, but as he plots a comeback and he continues to poison the Democratic well. Just a few minutes ago, he repeated lies about the election and ended a statement by saying, quote, never give up, telling his supporters not to give up on their their fantasies or that somehow Trump actually won when he lost six months ago. All of this is a sideshow meant to distract us from the larger issue at hand. Facebook is far too fucking powerful. The fact that we are discussing and dissecting the decision-making of a corporate entity and looking at its decrees with the same intensity and anticipation as a Supreme Court ruling shows that Facebook needs to be regulated. It controls the faucets on the flow of information and decides which news stories thrive and which ones are hidden. What is scientifically backed COVID advice and what is not? What is terrorism and what is expression? And what constitutes a conspiracy and what does not? 
And it does all of this based on profit. I, I think what it shows is that there's a broader right-wing echo chamber ecosystem that exists beyond any one or even multiple political platforms. Uh, because of the advent of hyper-partisan media, that echo chamber is perpetuating uh, polarization. Um, and that Trump's strength comes from that intimidation factor, from the base, from the, the money flow, uh, from all the things that create this incentive structure to have the Republican Party embrace a lie as a litmus test and condemn people who are telling the truth. Facebook itself, and not just Donald Trump, are threats to democracy. Not for the bullshit reasons spouted by GOP hysterics that there is some double standard or that it silences voices on the right, but because its business model is built on the presumption that the most divisive and ugly rhetoric is the most profitable. It's a hate machine and fake news machine that rewards the worst of the worst and is printing money as a result. Anything that gets in the way of Facebook's operating or optimizing this based on an algorithm is a threat to its overall business model and something that Mark Zuckerberg wants to avoid at all costs. We are seeing orchestrated, organized efforts to spread false information about the vaccine, false information about public health guidelines to spread racism, to organize violence over Facebook. Uh, this is something that Facebook needs to address on a day-to-day -day basis. And a, a dozen or so cases per year is simply insufficient to hold Facebook accountable. Instead, let's all pay attention to the drama playing out around Donald Trump decision. Even the oversight board itself is essentially toothless. It's a PR stunt masquerading as a solution, allowing Facebook to pretend like it's doing something about a problem that they don't really want to address. The harm that could come from Trump being back on the platform is immense. However, the oversight board isn't going to fix Facebook tomorrow, no matter what it does. It doesn't have the power to hold the entity accountable to its users all around the world. It simply doesn't. It's no Supreme Court. Never want to miss an opportunity to whine about their conservative victimhood. Fucking Ted Cruz and the usual gang of suspects came out of their MAGA coffins to decry the Facebook ruling. Whether it's six months or six days, what we see in this decision is really about chilling free speech. Donald Trump, per expectations, delivered a bizarre and incoherent response to the ruling that pushed a bevy of lies and answered for all to see why he should never be allowed on a social media platform without a sign around his neck that reads, Unhinged Fucking Liar. Free speech has been taken away from the President of the United States because the radical left lunatics are afraid of the truth. But the truth will come out anyway, bigger and stronger than ever before. Sure you will, buddy. Sure you will. The irony of both Trump and the GOP's performative outrage to the Facebook decision is that it's based on a set of lies put forth by Trump himself. 
Fox News has jumped into the fray and is programming wall-to-wall protest coverage of the decision as a parade of lawmakers and conservative pundits take to the airwaves to decry the decision. Yeah, I really do think that it needed to come to this in order to wake people up and understand if they can do this to the former president of the United States, someone who may very well run again in 2024. It can happen to all of us. It already does happen to all of us. The censorship, the shadow banning, the silencing of conservative voices. Big tech has gotten away with this for far too long. And while this is seemingly about Trump's ban from the platform, it's also become a referendum on the nature of truth itself. The Facebook decision follows Liz Cheney's pushback on Monday of a Trump email to the GOP faithful that read in part, and I quote, the fraudulent presidential election of 2020 will be, from this day forth, known as the big lie. It was notable for the language Trump was using as he attempted to rebrand the big lie as a term applying to those who support Joe Biden's electoral victory. Cheney the number three ranking Republican in the House immediately pushed back via Twitter. And she quoted, the 2020 presidential election was not stolen. Anyone who claims it is, is spreading the big lie, turning their back on the rule of law and poisoning our democratic system. This precipitated renewed calls for Cheney's expulsion from her leadership position as House Minority Leader was caught on a hot mic tearing Cheney apart for refusing to back Trump's lies. I think she's got real problems. I, 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 I've had it with I've had it with her. It's, you know, I, I've lost confidence. Well, someone just has to bring emotion, but I assume that will probably take place. Cheney released a Washington Post op-ed on Wednesday that was less of a personal defense and more an appeal to our sense of truth and justice. Breaking news, Congresswoman Liz Cheney is taking direct aim at former President Trump. History is watching. Our children are watching, Cheney writes. We must be brave enough to defend the basic principles that underpin and protect our freedom and our democratic process. I am committed to doing that, no matter what the short-term political consequences might be. 2020 election was not stolen. Anyone who claims it was is spreading the big lie, turning their back on the rule of law and poisoning our democratic system. The GOP seeks to whitewash January 6th, as well as Trump's role in inciting the riot. Cheney urges that there be no whitewash, and for that, she's being punished facing a vote to remove her from her post early next week. And now for the main event. My next guest on Maya Culpa is David Korn. As a Washington bureau chief for Mother Jones magazine and an on-air analyst for MSNBC, Korn is one of the preeminent progressive journalists covering politics today. He joins us today, scoop in hand, having just broken potentially bombshell news that Donald Trump Jr. made false statements in his own sworn testimony in the Trump inauguration scandal lawsuit that alleges major Trump family grifting. It's but one topic we've discussed today in addition to Facebook, Liz Cheney's refusal to push Trump's big lie and Joe Biden's first 100 days. 
which Korn argued last week, shows that Ronald Reagan was wrong about big government. Always at the center of the political maelstrom, Korn gives us plenty of insight on what to expect for Donald Trump and Joe Biden's next 100 days. So let's listen now to that conversation. So David, last week, Mother Jones published a major scoop from you that Don Jr., not surprisingly, made false statements in his sworn testimony in the Trump inauguration scandal lawsuit that alleges major Trump family grifting, another non-surpriser. Can you explain to my listeners who may have missed the piece what Don Jr. was lying about, what the case is seeking to uncover, and how much legal jeopardy does this pose for him and others? Well, let's first look at the case, because I think it's been under the radar in a lot of ways. And it is a prime example of what you just called Trump family grifting. Um, When Trump was elected, they set up the inauguration committee. This is a nonprofit, and it's set up to put on all those great inaugural balls and events. Sometimes there are concerts at the mall, candlelight dinners, and they raise money for this. You know, and there are basically no limits on, on the money. It can come from, you know, businessmen, people seeking favors. Of course, the committee got into trouble for taking money from foreign sources through pass-throughs, people trying to gain influence with the new Trump administration. And some of that has been investigated and has come out. But uh, a couple of months ago, the attorney general of Washington, D.C., which is like a state attorney general, filed a case uh, against the inauguration committee and the Trump organization. And it alleges that there was self-dealing and that the inauguration committee spent over a million dollars on buying event space, including event space it did not use from the Trump Hotel here in Washington, D.C., and that and that it paid far more than the market rate for that, more than twice the amount, in some cases, three, four times the amount of the market rate for that, and that it also spent a couple hundred thousands, thousands of dollars on a private party at the Trump Hotel that was really for Donald Trump Jr. and the other adult siblings. The president wasn't there. It was not open to the public. By no means could you call it really an official inauguration event. So it's a nonprofit. That means the money that comes into the inauguration committee has to be spent towards charitable public service ends. And they count the inauguration balls and things like that along those lines. But it doesn't include a private party for Donald Trump Jr. and his friends or friends of the family at the Trump Hotel. And you also have to spend money in, a, in, a, in an appropriate way. You can't you know, pay five times the amount. You have to get market rates. And so the D.C. Attorney General, Cal, Carl Racine, has filed this lawsuit. It's not a criminal suit, at least not yet, in which he's trying to get back money hundreds of thousands, maybe over a million dollars from the inauguration committee and or the Trump organization and give it to real charities. This is nonprofit funds that came in, tax exempt. Uh, People got tax write-offs. It has to be used in the right way. And so he's saying it wasn't give me the money back. It was used instead to enrich the Trumps through the Trump Hotel. So this lawsuit began last year 
And in the course of doing this lawsuit, I mean, Michael, you're familiar with this. You take depositions, right? So he's brought in Ivanka Trump, Tom Barrick, uh, this hedge fund guy who was very close to Donald Trump. I'm sure you know him, who, who was the president of the inauguration committee. And one of the people they brought in, brought in for the deposition was Donald Trump Jr. And the, and the deposition was made public uh, a couple weeks ago. I, I got it as anyone could. But I also got internal documents and a video from inside the inauguration campaign that showed time and time again, Donald Trump Jr. made statements that were factually incorrect. He didn't tell the truth. And when you give a deposition, you are sworn to tell the truth. It's like being in court. Do you swear? And so, um, you know, it's hard to prove perjury, as you know that as a lawyer. But there are a lot of statements made here that I think could put him in jeopardy um, of a possible perjury charge. But whether or not that happens, there are statements that were false false testimony, and we can go through some of them if you like. Well, yeah. So let me just give you a little bit of a background because I have some knowledge regarding the PIC, the Presidential Inaugural Committee. And yes, it was chaired by Tom Barrack, or Barack, however he pronounces his last name, as well as Jared Kushner. They were the two heads of the Presidential Inaugural Committee. I myself raised about $5 million for the Inaugural Committee. And as I'm sure you're well aware, Stephanie Winston Walkoff, who I've had on this podcast, is a key witness to the Washington Mm -hmm. authorities in regard to this because she had worked on the presidential inaugural committee. Now, my understanding, and we're talking about now five years ago, but my understanding is that there's about $80 million dollars. That's completely unaccounted for. And nobody can figure it out. Now, what's interesting is that Alan Weisselberg from the Trump Organization was actually handling, as he does with everything that's Donald-related, handled all of the finances, in and out, in and out. Now, one of the reasons, though, because he talked about market rates and how these inaugural committees cannot just spend um, any way that they want— One of the problems with market rates as it related to this inaugural committee is the fact that nobody wanted to work with or for Trump. It's why you saw no celebrities coming out, except for I think it was Brett Michaels who did it simply because he goes, I'm not political. I don't espouse Donald Trump's ideologies, nor am I anti-Donald Trump. I was asked, and it's an honor to play before a president, blah, 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 uh, bullshit, whatever, right? The problem is every single person that they reached out to, whether it was Beyonce, whether it was Lady Gaga, right? It didn't make a difference. They said, no, you couldn't pay me enough money. In fact, most individuals who I know celebrities, performers, not only did they say no, they didn't want Trump using their music for his rallies and that they hit him with cease and desists. So they had no choice but to pay more. But there's weird stuff with how much money they paid for plastic chairs and tables and all sorts of stuff. And I never really understood why they weren't able to get to the bottom. Now, you also talked about, as an example, uh, Don Jr. not telling the truth. Well, you know, one of Don Jr.'s 
you know, defenses could be, hey, I'm just stupid and I don't really know what I'm talking about because he had very little to do, from my understanding, with the inaugural committee other than basically grifting off people, wealthy people that they knew in order to invest and to send money to the uh, presidential inaugural committee. So, you know, the fact is they all lie. And that's a that's a big problem. Now, you did say something which I also have to agree with. You have when you testify, whether it's at a deposition or at a trial, you do so under the penalty of perjury. If, in fact, that they can determine that he was lying. And the problem is that there's now all of these emails and everything is now out there for, you know, the investigators to find and to see uh, he could be facing a perjury charge. That's a 1001 violation. Hi, folks. Michael Cohen here to talk to you about the dreaded tax season. We know it's scary enough, but the IRS is issuing warnings to watch out for ghost tax preparers. These ghost preparers don't sign as the paid tax preparer on your tax return, which could be a red flag that you may become a victim of a scam or a refund fraud. You put your information in so many places online. Unfortunately, cybercriminals around the world keep finding new ways to steal identities, including these lowlifes who want to steal your money during tax season. But the all-in-one protection of Norton 360 with LifeLock makes it easy to have protection in the digital world. Norton 360 with LifeLock gives you comprehensive protection for devices, online privacy, and identity. It also security blocks cybercriminals from stealing personal information on your devices. Their VPN with bank-grade encryption helps keep the personal information you send over Wi-Fi safe. LifeLock Identity Theft Protection monitors your personal information and alerts you to potential threats to your identity. Now, no one can prevent all cybercrime and identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses, but if you have Norton 360 with LifeLock, you can opt into cyber safety. So sign up today and save 25% or more off your first year by going to norton.com slash Cohen. That's 25% off Norton 360 with LifeLock at Norton.com slash Cohen. I will say, um, Stephanie Winston-Walkoff, who you've had on, who uh, was once a good friend of uh, Melania, wrote a great book about that, Melania and, and me. She, during the course of these preparations for the inauguration, uh, had sent uh, memos and had said verbally to people inside, including uh, Melania and Donald Trump Sr., that the money being spent was just way, way, way over the top. It was over the, the standard rates that the Trump Hotel had. And in terms of buying ballrooms and spaces for events, there were hotels that other hotels that they could have gone to. Uh, yes, they had trouble getting talent, but in terms of like just places to hold, you know, hold events, uh, there are other hotels uh, available, and they did buy space, of course, in the uh, Washington Convention Center for a lot of the big inaugural balls. And um, so, it, you know, they they were getting quotes from the Trump Hotel initially for like $3 million that was just obscene, and then it came down to like $1 million, and Stephanie said, I think it should be no more than $175,000 for market rates, and we probably can find other hotels. So she was kind of blowing the whistle at the time, and it was just totally, 
totally ignored. Donald Trump Jr. was raising some money for the uh, inauguration. He claimed during the deposition he had nothing to do with the finance committee. But Sarah Armstrong, who was CEO of the inauguration and was a leading figure in the Republican National Committee prior to this, testified that he attended at least one, if not more, meetings of the Finance Committee. But there were these events being set up for Donald Trump Jr. during the inauguration by the PIC, by the Presidential Inauguration Committee, that were very odd. One was this, uh, they called it the Sportsman Ball, which was basically for the hunting community that he'd raised money out of. And if you gave a million dollars, you could have a photo op and a a reception with Donald Trump Sr. with the president. And you could go on a multi-day hunting trip with Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump. Not something I would pay money. You might have to pay me a million dollars to do that. And the money was going to some charity that had been set up by two of Donald Trump Jr.'s cronies. Like in the middle of all this, it was unclear where that money would go after that. Donald Trump Jr. himself was listed as a director of this foundation. But yet when he was asked about it during the deposition, he said he knew nothing. He said he knew nothing about this. This event wasn't a focus of mine. But according to planning documents that I got uh, from the inauguration committee, it listed on all these proposed schedules uh, that this was going to be a Donald Trump Jr. event, uh, the sportsman ball. So it really didn't make sense that he had no idea what was going on. And it was only canceled once TMZ reported on the fact that he and Eric were trying to sell these million-dollar packages, and it was unclear where the money was going. And then there was a Donald Trump concert, Donald Trump Jr. concert, at the Verizon Center that he was asked about during the deposition. He said, I never heard about this. But again, there are all these fun, all these documents, planning documents, that referred to a Donald Trump Jr. Concert. And in fact, even a friend of his had been hired to produce it. As you say, Michael, they couldn't get talent. They couldn't fill a Verizon Center. I'm not sure they could have filled, you know, a smaller theater. And so that too was canceled. And the one funny side bit for one of these events, uh, I saw a planning document in which they said Steven Tyler, the lead singer of Aerosmith, was um, uh, interested in performing but he wanted to use it as a platform. I don't know what that means, to talk about issues that he cared about. And they said, no, we can't allow that to happen. That's too risky. So they couldn't get the talent for the concert, but they did try to do these events for Donald Trump Jr. that the DCAG was very interested in. And my guess is he was interested in the fact that they were using or would be using nonprofit money coming in, money you raised and other people raised, to hold these events that were for Donald Trump Jr., and it was unclear where the money from those events would end up going. So he didn't know about that. He kept saying he didn't know anything about this, and that doesn't seem believable. He said he didn't attend or couldn't remember attending some of these key inauguration events uh, where there's video of him attending. And one of the big lies was, you know, we talk about Stephanie Winston-Walkoff. He was asked about her. And remember, she's the whistleblower here, right? She's the one who said they were paying these exorbitant rates. They were misusing money. He said, I don't know her. Uh, She was in this room. I probably wouldn't recognize her. Well, we found video of her, of him at one of these inauguration events, the candlelight dinner, fancy formal tuxes. 
Um, I don't know if you were there. Uh, there was at Union Station, big to do, all the Trump world luminaries. He was there. And not only was he there, on the video, he praises Stephanie for running this amazing event. And then at the same time, we have emails of him sending emails to Stephanie. He had testified that he had no involvement with her. Emails to her offering various types of talent or people who could help with inauguration events. So why is he lying and saying he didn't know her? He had no involvement with her. He wouldn't recognize her. He had dinner. The Trump family had dinner with her on Sunday night of the inauguration weekend before they all flew home together with her in uh, the Trump plane. So again and again and again, he was distancing himself from all these things that might have put him in the line of fire. Right, and Stephanie is not somebody that you just don't take notice to. Uh, I was there at the Union Station. Uh, She was sitting in the third table directly in front of the stage, along with, I believe Tom Barrack was at that table as well. She's six feet tall. So, and her husband is six five, <laughs> six six. Uh, so, rest assured, there you don't miss them as you're walking past them, right? Uh, and and you wouldn't say I would not recognize her, you know, if yeah. she was in this room. Yeah, well, that's Don Junior. I've never seen her before. I've never. And then there'll be a whole bunch of videos, and he'll be like, uh, "That's just not me." And it, look, that's it's it's one of the problems with the Trumps. They lie the way that you breathe. They just can't help themselves, and. You know, they they taking the old playbook out of Roy Cohn, right? Deny, 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 lie, lie, lie. I've also noticed in particular, looking through Donald Trump senior depositions, that he has said, you know, more than once about somebody, I wouldn't recognize them if they were in the room. He said that about Felix Sater in a, in a famous deposition, who he had worked with closely that, 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 that you know. And so I just found it very um, striking that his son would use the exact same form of absurd denial. I would not even recognize her if she were in the room. Yes, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, and having read other Donald Trump uh, senior depositions, the amount of, of, of lying and obfuscation and wordplay um, depends what you mean by accurate is a, is a, is a, is a clip I put out of him last year when he was in one deposition about the Trump University case, and they asked him if something was accurate. He goes, it depends what you mean by accurate. Well, there's only one real definition of accurate. It's true or it's not. They, they do seem to lie with impunity and believing that, you know, there will be no consequences. And the one thing, you know, one question I have for you, because it's something that, you know, having written about Trump, and I knew Trump before 2016, I'm a New Yorker, as I told you off air, my uncle worked for him before you did. So it's just someone I've paid attention to a long time. And that is, I don't know at the end of the day whether he believes his bullshit or not. Does he come to believe it? Does he believe he, he the election was stolen from him? Does he believe he has the best brain in the world? All these times he says things that not, I wouldn't recognize Felix Sater if he was in this room. Does he just know I'm lying through the skin of my teeth and I'm just going to get away with it? Does he come to believe the lies that this is all fake news? This is not, I mean, what, you, what, so, what, David, I mean, what do you think? What a great question. And let me sort of give you the, the shortened version of it. When Donald, Donald Trump doesn't believe his lies, not at first. When he first tells the lie, he knows that he's lying, but he's such a sociopath, right, that – Event, when you repeat a lie 
over and over and over again, right? You start to believe your own bullshit. And that's Donald Trump's problem. It starts out that he knows he's full of shit. And then after repeating the same lie and then having, you know, journalists repeat the same lie and then Fox News repeat the same lie and then all of the people around him continuously to spread the same disinformation, the same lie. He starts to believe his own bullshit. And that's the that's the problem. You know, it's one thing if you're a bullshit artist, which he is. It's another thing when you're a sociopath and you believe your own bullshit. That's when things become dangerous. And that's the that's Donald Trump in a nutshell. But I want to just move on. I want to move on for a second. In your piece last week for Mother Jones on President Biden's first 100 days, you argue that and I quote, Ronald Reagan was wrong. Government can provide the solution to our national problems using the vaccine rollout as a case in point for this new expansion of government and Biden's vision uh, and Biden's vision for its expansion. Now, how does he make this come to pass, though, with an obstructionist Congress and the filibuster? Will we actually see these things happen as legislation or will they have to be pushed through again through executive order, something that Donald Trump mastered? I think I look at it as three phases, Michael. I think, you know, we have what, you know, I'm sure your sophisticated listeners know this process called budget reconciliation in the Senate, which allows you to pass important things with 50 votes with the majority vote uh, that without without it being filibustered. And this was basically, you know, set into place because you got to pass a budget. You got to pass, you know, tax uh, legislation. And if that was held hostage to 60 votes, then truly we would become a completely dysfunctional government if that could be held up. So there are things that a lot that go through. So when it comes to the COVID relief, when it, uh, it comes to some of the infrastructure bill stuff and some of the stuff in his family first plan that he introduced last week in his speech, some of that you can get through. So that, you know, that will be happening. Uh, in the in the next few weeks, it, it's already it already happened first with the first COVID relief uh, plan. Then there are things that you know that a filibuster can stop. Obviously, uh, the voter register, you know, vote, you know, the anti-voter suppression bill HR one, which is what it's called in the House. You know, gun safety legislation, uh, maybe things like equal pay, uh, Family Medical Leave Act. You know, maybe parts of the infrastructure bill. Those are all sorts of things that you probably can't use through reconciliation. And that's all decided ultimately by the Senate parliamentarian. Now, so my guess is I get through what they can with reconciliation. That will cover some of the healthcare stuff he wants to change, tweak and make Obamacare better. Then they may turn to these other types of legislation. And if they get if they can't find a couple of Republicans, in a few cases they might, they might be able to Susan Collins or Lisa Murkowski, and some of this, very limited, to get over 50, then, you know, they'll pass that. But then we'll see the roadblock and the and the filibuster obstructionism hit in. And at that point, it will be up to those recalcitrant Democrats that we've been talking about from the very beginning. Uh, uh, Joe Manchin, Kristen Sinema, maybe a few others, to decide, okay, this is, this is you know, the inflection point. Do we throw our hands up and let the Republican obstructionism stop everything in its tracks? Or do we 
you know, change the filibuster? Do we find carve outs in the filibuster? You don't have to reform it entirely, find other sort of creative solutions to get workarounds or not. And I think in some ways, if you look at particularly the voter suppression stuff, which H.R. 1 is supposed to counter, if Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema want to remain in a party that can, that's the majority party, they're going to have to think long and hard about how to find a way to pass some of this stuff. Otherwise, you're going to end up with Republicans using gerrymandering, voter suppression tech, tactics to basically give us minority rule. I mean, it's already pretty stunning. For the way that the congressional districts are, are, are designed, for the Democrats to control the House, they need 54% of the entire vote for if you added up all the votes for the House Democratic races. So if the Republicans got 46, 47% of that vote nationwide, they can control the House. The Senate is already disproportionately controlled, uh, well, not controlled, but has a disproportional amount of power for the senators because of the rural states where, you know, you get two senators from a Republican state like Wyoming and two from California. But if you talk about the population sizes, the Wyoming voters have so much more influence. So, I mean, we are, you know, with those 40, well, not 40, like over 200 bills in 40 states, you know, that Republicans are pushing to curtail voting, which will disproportionately impact mainly voters of color, but also college students and other young younger voters looking for ways to make this society less representative. And so if they, if these all come to pass and they work the way the Republicans want it to work on top of the gerrymandering and the Senate uh, way votes get divided up, we could end up with a real profound crisis where, where we have what, what you have to call minority rule, where majorities that want gun safety measures you know, wider voting, tax cuts on the, on the very wealthy, $400,000 and above, to pay for our infrastructure needs, expansion of, of, of Medicare and Medicaid, you know, to help people to give us some semblance of a healthcare system that maybe matches what we have in other Western industrialized nations. That the majority of the public that wants these things are defied by a minority of the public. And at that point, you know, it could be rather dire. It could be a real fundamental crisis in democracy. Up until, of course, Joe Biden decides to start doing what Trump did and saying, screw all this. I'm just going to do it via executive order, which is my right, based upon certain things, as we're talking about. You can do that in certain ways. That gets, right. you, that gets you some of the way. doesn't get you all doesn't the way. doesn't get you all the way, but you're right, some of them. And then you have the court. And don't forget, Michael, you then you have the courts which have been flooded with Trump appointees, you know, they they have a conservative tilt now. So some of these executive orders will be challenged and some will be supported in the courts and, and, a, and a fair number of them might be overturned. Yeah, I agreed with you. Now, in reaction to the Facebook Oversight Board's choice not to rule on whether former President Trump should be let back on their platforms, but rather have Facebook decide as a corporate entity, 
Your colleague at Mother Jones, I think her name was Pema Levy, wrote the following. Yeah. And I quote, the decision to send the ultimate decision back to Facebook simply left, uh, lengthens what many critics believe is ultimately a sideshow. An important case that sucks up all the attention while Facebook continues to host and to spread dangerous, destabilizing content. If you would, discuss with me what you believe is at stake with this decision. And why do you think Facebook is so hesitant to make this decision or clamp down on dangerous content? Well, the the, the obvious answer to the last question, the easiest question you just posed, is money. You know, they make a lot of money. Uh, by having more people use Facebook. And as we saw in the 2016 election and, and, and since and, and prior, uh, there a large part of their users are conservatives or in, uh, who, who turn to Facebook for alternative media sources, often disinformation or misinformation away from what, you know, they would uh, pejoratively call mainstream media. And so it's very important. I mean, if you look, you know, you, you have people like Josh Hawley and others out there complaining that big tech is biased against the, you know, the right wing and conservatives. Well, if you look, you know, you know, Facebook every day tells you what are the most shared posts. It's not a secret. Uh, it's even a Twitter feed. You know, what was shared most of the day. And I, I, I looked at it yesterday and out of the top 10, seven or eight were Ben Shapiro posts. Okay, now, you know, you know, Ben Shapiro's free to say whatever he wants, but it shows you that the algorithms that Facebook is, is, is using, you know, often tend to uh, help and boost and amplify voices of on the right and even extremists and even disinformation more on the left. In fact, a story came out in the Wall Street Journal a few months ago now uh, that when they were playing with their algorithms at some point, uh, to try to get less biased information uh, at the top of the pack, they realized that it actually took away or inhibited a lot of information coming from conservative sources, and they rejiggered the numbers. And in one of the, you know, in the presentation that, that, that was presented to the higher-ups about this, one of the slides, which we were then leaked or told about, was that this new algorithm will limit Mother Jones but help the Ben Shapiro's of the world. So they've been ideologically loaded for a long time now. I mean, I think they probably, maybe they get more money from the, from the right and advertising to, to those Facebook groups and users than they do for people who are on the left of center. And they don't want to change that. They don't want to deal with that. They don't want to come to terms with that. You know, think about all the content that flies across Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, Snapchat, and all these other places they don't want to be in the position of responsibility. They want to get the money for doing this, but they don't want to say, well, you know, this is what Section 203 is all about. But we're not responsible for the content. We're not responsible for generating the hate <laughs> right. of this information. Right. We're just, we're just a platform and we're just we're going just to. We're just a platform. Yeah, we're just going to allow people to express and to use the guise of the First Amendment in order to stand by this decision, non-decision. Well, you know. Which would be one thing. It would be one thing if they didn't have algorithms. If it was a true free-for-all and everybody played equally, you know, whether it was a Nazi or, you know, a, a Christian charity. If everybody had the same equal access 
but they have these algorithms, which I don't think a lot of users really understand that show what gets promoted. And, 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 and I know that personally, I, I, I have a, an author's page, maybe you do too, that has 60,000 followers, not a tremendous amount, but not a little amount. And these are people who come to my page and they, and I just post articles that I do uh, that other, other articles that I think people should see. And it used to be a couple of years ago, I put up an article and out of the 60,000 people who follow me, it would go out to 20, 30, 40,000 of them. And then they changed their algorithm a few years ago. And now each thing I put up goes out 1,500 people, 2,000 if I'm lucky. And I don't think the people who sign up to my page understand that they're being blocked from seeing what I write. And I think, you know, occasionally people talk to me or, or DM me. And they go, how come your stuff isn't in my feed anymore? And I go, it's because Facebook has decided not to put me in your feed. And so the fact that they're making these editorial decisions should come with responsibility, right? How, you know, who's getting through and who's not. And they don't want to have to, you know, take on that responsibility. So Pema Levy's piece, a point in her piece today is dead on. There's all this focus on whether Trump is or isn't on, but dealing with the larger problem of who gets access to the Facebook audience um, is, is something that they're not really coming to terms with. Well, they need to figure out what to do with Trump one way or the other. Hi, folks. Michael Cohen here, and we've got an amazing sponsor for this episode, The Jordan Harbinger Show. Things can get pretty intense discussing American politics, so if you need a break from the news cycle and want to hear incredible storytelling that is both fascinating and actionable, you have to check it out. On Tuesday's episode, Jordan interviews productivity maestro Cal Newport, who imagines a future without email. The show covers such a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests. And there are a ton of episodes you'll find interesting since you're a fan of this show. Check out the April 8th episode with famed skeptic Michael Shermer. I also found time to catch up on some old episodes and listen to the February 18, 2021 episode with a culty programmer who describes helping families get their loved ones out of QAnon. It's fascinating and ultimately heartbreaking. There's an episode for everyone, though, no matter what you're into. The show covers stories like how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. Jordan's also done an episode all about birth control and how it can alter the partners we pick and how going on or off the pill can change elements of our personalities. The podcast covers a lot, but one constant is his ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. I promise you, you'll find something useful that you can apply to your own life, whether it's an actionable routine change that boosts your productivity or just a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. We really enjoy the show and we think you will as well. So search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I do want to move to something which I think is even more important. 
In the wake of Liz Cheney pushing back against Trump's election mm-hmm. lies again, right, this past Monday, Kevin McCarthy, who I fucking can't stand. I mean, I look at his face. <laughs> I, I want to break my television screen. I can't stand him. Yeah. So um, not only Kevin McCarthy and the GOP, they've all signaled that there shall be no dissent on the question. Either embrace the big lie or be abandoned. Now, you jokingly tweeted that Fox should broadcast show trials to purify the GOP ranks. But is this now the ultimate side that McCarthy and the GOP are determined to whitewash January 6th and basically rewrite history in favor of the Trump narrative that he actually won the election? What the fuck is up with this? You know, one thing that I try to stay away from because it's a cliche and it's almost too easy. You know, comparisons to Nazi Germany in the 30s or to 1984 and Big Brother. But really, the Orwell, Orwell wrote in 1984 that basically the, the triumph of the party was for you not to believe your own eyes, but to believe what the party said, including the premise that two plus two is five. That's what, you know, once you believed that, then the party had won. You, you were totally brainwashed. And that's what this whole big lie is, is about. It, you know, it is. And the show trials that I mentioned, you know, were, were serious and horrific affairs when people had to get up there and knowingly testify to lies. Lies about what they were, that they were American spies, that they were against the revolution. They would have to give names of other people. Michael Cohn did this, even when they knew he didn't do that. Uh, we had a little bit of that with the Hollywood 10 here in the 1950s. But in this instance, it was, you know, just signed fake confessions to uh, support the party line. And that's exactly where the Republican Party is now. If you don't support the big lie, which is one of the biggest lies in American history, we're not talking about a little big lie. This is a big, big lie. David, this isn't this isn't just a, a big lie. This is, I mean, pardon my French, this is fucking delusional. I mean, this is seriously, yes, del- and I can't get my head around the fact that these elected figures are so willing to support and bolster what amounts to what anybody who opens up their eyes and their ears is a blatant lie and dangerous propaganda, right? Well, well, well listen, well, listen, you know, go back. I mean, I, I wish MSNBC would do this every day or CNN. They should play Mitch McConnell's speech during the impeachment hearing, the second impeachment hearing, and they should play Kevin McCarthy's speech at the impeachment hearing every single day because they each said that Trump that Trump lost the election. They each said that Trump was responsible for the violent, murderous insurrection. I mean, and, and you know, and and McConnell, you know, basically said he shouldn't be president, even though he wasn't president at the time. But he didn't believe you can impeach someone after the fact. And Kevin McCarthy said impeachment, he thought, was wrong, but we should censure him. You know, quasi brave stands for the Republican leaders to blast the Republican outgoing president. And now both of them are just so far up Trump's backside, McConnell saying he would endorse him if he gets the nomination, and Kevin McCarthy going down to Mar-a-Lago 
uh, to uh, you know kiss the ring, bend the knee. And I, I'm on all of these mailing lists. And I get these, you know, fundraising letters from Kevin McCarthy for his own campaign that tout Trump over and over and over. So there was like a nanosecond where they were willing to say the truth. And then they realized that they couldn't survive as Republican leaders if they did so. And so they've totally flipped. The whole party has flipped. You know, Liz Cheney, I know this is hard for your uh, audience to believe. I've not been a big fan of Liz Cheney over the years. And, you know, and I, you know, I wrote a book how, how the Iraq war was the big lie at the time that, you know, WMDs and working with Al Qaeda and Saddam Hussein being, being behind 9-11. And her father was the biggest liar of the big lie at that time. And she supported all that. But, um, you know, now you know, I'm happy to see her trying. I'm, you know, I'm a popular front type of guy. You know, once someone joins your side, you welcome them. We all have an interest in reality and in truth. You know, I never thought I would ever agree with Bill Crystal. You know, and here I find we're, we're on the same side. Charlie Sykes, you know, uh, all these former conservatives who now, you know, I, I, I give them, you know, I give them current credit, not past credit, but current credit for realizing that we're not in an ideological fight anymore. We're in a fight between reality and and fantasy and non-reality, between truth and lies, between the ultimate cause, which is the foundation of democracy, versus creeping and sometimes galloping authoritarianism. So it's not right-left anymore. It's sane, insane. It's democracy versus authoritarianism. And so I'm happy that even though, I mean, listen, Liz Cheney, voted for Trump's agenda like 97, 98% of the time. You know, you know, in any other sane world, you would call her a Trump Republican. But because she's not willing to, to go along with a lie, and because she's willing to say what happened on January 6th was a national atrocity, the, the, you know, the rest of the party, and it's not just, it's not a fight within the party, I mean, she's on the losing side of a 90-10 split. 70% of Republicans in this poll that came came out last week believe the big lie. Yeah, it's really scary. And I'll tell you something. You know, I believe that a lot of this has to do with the base, uh, the millions of Americans that are supporting Trump, uh, that's supporting this big lie. And if they would stop acting delusional and insane, accept the and stop accepting the big lie and promoting this big lie, then rest assured, the opportunists like Kevin McCarthy uh, or Josh Hawley, they would eventually disappear and they would be signing on to the same uh, tune that Liz Cheney was signing because it happens to be correct, right? Um, now, I want to ask you this. What do you make of Trump's... But, 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 let me just say one thing about that point, because that point is what fascinates me. Because it's not, it's not a top-down thing. It's a bottom-up thing. It's a fact that the Republican base has become so weaponized in its craziness, starting with the Tea Party and Sarah Palin and moving, you know, through birtherism, you know, with Obama and all, you know, and now QAnon and everything else. They've become so uh, radically extreme and conspiratorial that, yeah, Kevin McCarthy, he would go in any direction. He'd be an Eisenhower Republican. He would be a Rockefeller Republican. He'd be a Goldwater Republican, depending what he thought 
he needed to do. And that's true with Mitch McConnell as well, who began his career as a liberal uh, uh, Rockefeller Republican. So they would go where they will, but it's the base that has become so radicalized and, you know, in, in part by, you know, falling for Trump's, you know, spell that they can't, they can't act reasonably without fear of real retribution from the base. It's true. Now, I don't know how you change that. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's one person at a time, I guess. Right. What do you make of Trump's new blog? Is it merely a fundraising <laughs> scam with those yellow boxes and some additional content added? Or do you see it as his attempt to restart his daily dialogue with his MAGA supporters, right, through this really very 2010 sort of medium, you know, 2000 <laughs> medium? Because it's really very antiquated in terms of um, I know. technology. I, 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 I was... I was imagining a scene at Mar-a-Lago where, like, Jason um, Miller Miller was explaining this to you. We have a new platform for you, Mr. President. We have a new platform. It's called a blog. <laughs> yeah, like, right. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, it, it, so, I mean, it, you know, we're, we're laughing at it. I, you know, I assume, you know, you know, Trump has a very devoted, loyal audience. And because of the you old know, Facebook ban and the Twitter ban, you know, he lost this very direct um, interactive uh, connection with him. I think that connection was very important. I think it was very important to what, you know, to his electoral victory. I think it was very important to him having the power that scared other members, other officials in the Republican Party. And I think with the, with the new Trump blog, uh, he will... He won't regain everything. I don't think it's, it's. I don't think it will be as effective as Twitter. It won't be as interactive. He won't be, you know, retweeting people the way he, you know, you can do easily on on Twitter. It doesn't lend itself to, you know, Facebook groups and and sharing the way Instagram does. Uh, I still think for diehards, it will be that one to one connection, more of a one way street than than ever. And I do think. You know, if we look at what he's been, the statements he's been putting out in his first blog entries, <laughs> um, you know, he, he really, you know, I don't, you know, I don't know. If, the word crazy isn't really right, but you know, there is a level of unhingement and derangement when he writes and worries about just incredibly unimportant things to such an extreme extent that I think, you know, this is perfectly set up for the diehard people who will give him money for anything and, and, and observe anything he puts out there. But I think on the edges, you know, and you need, in politics, you need to reach the edges. It's not going to be effective. I mean, you know, if he has, you know, if, if he has a diehard part of the population at 20%, you know, or less, you know, this will be good for them. But if he ever wants to run again and get back up to the mid 40s, which you may need to do to get an electoral college victory, I don't think this is is going to be effective. Right. But it's funny that you said about Jason Miller, because I think he's a jerk off also. But I can only see Jason Miller coming up to him and saying, Mr. Trump, Mr. Trump, have you heard about this thing called TikTok? Right. And so what we need is for you to start doing some twerking on TikTok. All right. Or one of those drop the Owl TikToks will get all your fans, but all your followers back. And him sitting there scratching his head. What's TikTok? 
what's the, is it, is it right? <laughs> I mean, he has no freaking clue in terms of anything, and they just keep bringing him this nonsense. But I want to talk to you for a moment about another guy who I have no, no regard for, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Now, DeSantis is very quickly actually emerging as a GOP favorite and talking head on Fox News. In addition, his most recent legislation from the anti-riot bill to the dropping of all COVID regulation seems to be as much for, you know, leaning into culture wars as it is to benefit Floridians. Do you see him as a potential 2024 candidate or will this be as far as he gets? And if anyone grows to, you know, a larger profile, Trump will ultimately swoop down and cut their head off. Yeah, that's that's a really good point that you mentioned at the end there. It's clear. And and, and, and almost any, you know, this is one way. This is a situation that almost any politician would do if, you know, if you're in the position that Donald Trump is to tease a presidential run for two, three years, you tend to do it. All politicians tend to do this. Why? It gives you attention, keeps you in the public eye. If Donald Trump announced today he wasn't going to run again, we know how much interest people would lose and the media would lose in him. And it also, you know, takes away your ability to be a kingmaker if you want to, uh, anoint someone, but in Donald Trump's case, also to extract revenge. I mean, I've always believed, and I've written this a couple of times now, that the three things that motivate him the most are revenge, revenge, and revenge. Or you could say spite, spite, spite. And uh, I've, you know, you just search my name on Google, Trump, and the word revenge, and you'll see the stories I've written about that. And so, you know, I think as much for him you know, settling scores and making sure Mike Pence doesn't get any traction or or anybody else who he doesn't like who turned against him, maybe Chris Christie in a way. So I think, you know, it's in Trump's benefit to sort of, you know, stay in this, you know, 800-pound uh, you know, griller role and, you know, and let all the other, you know, pygmies run around and say, oh, I want to be president and I want to be president and then wait until he wants to, you know, put his thumb on them and squash them like a bug. I just talked about pygmies, bugs, and gorillas. There. And, um, you know, you know, there may come a time when he decides that he won't run, doesn't want to run, and in which case he can then either elevate or act like, you know, the, the godfather and make everybody just kowtow to him to get an endorsement that may never, ever, ever come. I mean, look at, you know, Ted Cruz, running down and having dinner with him this week in Mar a Largo. I mean Oh, what a thrill. Nothing would make me happier than to sit down with the single most boring human being on the planet, Ted Cruz, for a dinner. It's like, you know, you may as well be in your bedroom so at least you have your head down on a pillow so you're comfortable when you sleep. I've seen Ted Cruz speak. I find him to be the worst speaker. I find him to be boring as hell and 
Look, I don't believe that Trump is going to be running in 2024. I think he has enough headaches right now um, dealing with the New York DA, with the attorney general, Washington, as we first spoke about, Georgia, the multitude of litigation by women, you know, claiming assault and so on. So I think this whole thing is nothing more than a continued grift, which is why. And don't forget, and don't forget all the debt he has to deal with in the next couple of years, right? Correct. Correct. I just don't I, I don't believe that if that right now anything that he's doing is anything more than trying to stay relevant because that's the most important thing to Donald. The more he stays relevant to you, the more grift he can do, right? If you, you know because he keeps raising money for you know his campaign, his legal fund and so and he can keep his operation going, he can put relatives on it on the payroll that way. So yes, yeah, so the more he teases and doesn't take himself out of the picture, the more money he can keep raising. Correct. Now, earlier this week, Judge Amy Jackson accused the Justice Department under Attorney General William Barr of misleading her and Congress about advice that he had received from top department officials on whether President or former President Donald J. Trump should have been charged with obstructing the Russia investigation and ordered that a related memo be released. Now, this will Mm -hmm. obviously further tarnish Bill Barr's already trashed, right, reputation. But do you think this memo will reveal something beyond what the public already knows? I think it will reveal, reading between the lines of what the judge said, uh, and, you know, he basically said there was a memo that said Trump could not be prosecuted for the obstruction of justice um, allegations that were very, very detailed in the Robert Mueller report. He came up with you know at least 10 instances of what could be prosecutable instances of obstruction of justice. And Barr said, well, you know, we have a policy of justice and I have a memo saying that, you know, he can't really be prosecuted and these don't rise to that level. Now, if that memo doesn't really say that like it could be here's the case why it can't be but here's the case why it could be it could have outlined outlined two different approaches or it could have just been a lot more indefinite you know so i i think that that's what i think it's going to be in that memo that it wasn't as uh, as straightforward in its conclusion as Barr said so it won't give us more information about what Trump did or didn't do, what was in the Mueller report or wasn't or what was redacted. I don't think it will do that, uh, maybe one or two little facts. But it will show us, I mean, the early indication is that it will show us that William Barr essentially lied to the American public and to protect Trump, which we kind of know he did already if you look at how Robert Mueller responded afterwards and came out and said, wait a second, how you described the report is not true, but this will just be further evidence and will be, you know, it will be in black and white. It will be a document saying this while Barr said that and uh, will continue, you know, be yet another piece of taint, not something else to tarnish Bill Barr's uh, tenure as attorney general. You know, it's interesting because while I agree that the memo is important. I think what's probably even more important than the memo will be the underlying of other communications 
that applied in terms of why did Bill Barr even produce this memo? Who was he in contact yeah. with? It's something that I spoke about on television, on MSNBC and on CNN with Alison Camrata um, a few days ago with Rudy Giuliani. Everybody keeps talking about Rudy Giuliani, Rudy Giuliani, taking his devices and so on. And what I tried to bring out was the fact that communications are always with at least two people. So the question is, we already know Rudy's fucked up. We already know that he's made a ton and a half of mistakes. You know, he's falling under the same trap that I did. Trump will not pay the fees. It makes no difference, even though it's not his money, right? It's the grifted money. It's the additional communications that I believe are more relevant to showing what Bill Barr was up to. I'd like to personally see the communications between Bill Barr and others in regard to the unconstitutional remand of me back to prison based upon retaliation. I'm waiting for all the Democrats that there to ask the new attorney general, Merrick Garland, for these documents. Right? This is the way that Bill Barr try to appease his master, right? He was the lapdog, and he was trying to appease, right, his king, Donald. And these are all not just obstruction, right? These are, it's witness tampering, obstruction of justice. It's criminality at the highest level when you have the president of the United States weaponizing the Justice Department against its citizenry, myself included. And you know know the way bureaucracies work. I mean, Trump may like, you know, you know, you know, Trump and you and, and you know, uh, you're no Roy Cohn, but Trump learned how to talk about these things from Roy Cohn. And you testified to that when you came before Congress. It's like, you know, it's like, I, I mean, I, you know, used to listen to all these mob tapes. You talk to that guy. Yeah. About the thing. Yeah. The thing. Is he going to do the thing? You know what I want? Well, he should do the. You know, you know, you, 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 you sort of send signals. But when you get to a bureaucracy, like, you know, he may talk that way to Barr. He may talk that way to Jeff Sessions or to Pat Cipollone. But when they talk to the Justice Department, stuff starts getting written down. You know, it has to go to career people and and they start writing emails or they start writing memos to the record. You know, well, I was asked by so-and-so to to do this thing about Michael Cohn, not to transfer him, or to transfer him, whatever it was. I was asked to do this about Michael Manafort. They keep records. They put things in emails. You know, if, if they're making a decision or if they're being told to make a decision, they write an email. I've been instructed to do blah, 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 right? So it doesn't fall on them. So I'm guessing that whether it's in your case or the case of the the memos that that, that Barr cites um, with uh, with the Mueller report, that there are people who worked on these things, who wrote memos that if we had to get those memos and emails, you'd get a much fuller picture. I'm being told to do this because the president told Barr to do this, you know, whatever. So um, there's probably a wealth of material within those Justice Department files. Uh, and I hope you and, and others are submitting FOIAs. Yeah, you could submit all the FOIAs in the world that you want. The papers that come back are completely unrelated. They're redacted even to myself. It is the most frustrating process that's out there. I know. I've been doing it, I've been doing it for 40 years. My first book, I put FOIAs in 10 years after the book came out, which took me five years to write. So 15 years later, 
I was still getting responses. Are you interested in this FOIA request? <laughs> it was like, it was, it's crazy. But, you know, a f- bunch of stuff just came out from, uh, of Mueller report exhibits and documents. And so hopefully with a more transparent, open Justice Department, some of this will come out and maybe members of Congress will, will, will push for certain things. But uh, yes, I, I mean, I, I do think if if the memo comes out which is part of a FOIA request uh, regarding the you know the bar's decision on the Mueller report uh, that might lead to members of Congress and others saying okay let's see all the surrounding material yeah send that over right and that you know that doesn't go through FOIA and if you have a you know a Merrick Garland Department of Justice you might actually get some of that stuff well he's going to have to order it. You know, as we're winding down the hour, David, I just have a couple, you know, quick, you know, questions for you. Now, I love the Mother Jones piece last week in reaction to Tim Scott that read, and I quote, GOP's black friend says America is not a racist country. Now, the piece goes on to argue that Senator Scott's rebuttal offered a safe space for white conservatives who live in constant fear as they face the menacing specter of incremental progress in racial and social justice. If you would, unpack for my listeners what this means in terms of the GOP's desire to duck accusations of racism and hide from social progress. Well, I got to give props to Natalie Baptiste, um, one of my reporters who wrote that piece, and she's great. And and if you care about pieces about social justice, racism, she writes about the death penalty a lot. Really follow her on Twitter. It's Natalie Baptiste. I, I, you know, what, what, what I, I, and I think she hits the, the, the nail on the head here. You know, the Republican Party knows that one of its great vulnerabilities, electorally speaking, constituency speaking, is with uh, suburban voters, particularly women voters. And these are people who um, certainly don't like to be called racist. They probably, hopefully most of them are not racist. And they don't like to be associated with, with racists. They know it's wrong. Um, and it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's not good for society. So the degree to which the Republican Party, particularly when it's led by Donald Trump, you know, with his misogyny and, and, and overt racism, gets tainted, I think accurately, as a party of white grievance and often of outright racism. You know, Mother Jones just today put out a story about a Trump rally in which one of the organizers, he's one of the boat rallies that Trump is always pointing to, look at these great boat rallies. The leader of one of them is shouting white power at one of these boat rallies. So when you know when when you, when you see that, and you're a Republican who don't, doesn't believe you're a racist, or maybe you're not even racist, you you get a concern. This is not a home for me. This is not a place for me. So the Republican Party has been very good in public events, particularly like at the Republican national conventions, of just putting on all these black speakers, uh, often at a high, tremendously high proportion get out there to say, you know, I'm a Republican, so how can the party be racist? You know, whether it's Herschel Walker, the football player they, they used, and, and, and others. And so here they had Tim Scott. And I was very perplexed listening to Tim Scott's remarks because he said, you know, he talked about how he overcame, overcame racism 
but how America is not a racist society. And he said, you know, we don't have a, a problem of race and policing, yet he is, you know, uh, introducing and pushing an, an alternative to the Democrats' police reform bill. So does that have nothing to do with race? It was very, it was, you know, it, if you listen carefully, you got a headache because, you know, I overcame racism. People can overcome racism, but there is no racism. And but it's what they, you know, it, it, it's what they did. It's what they tend to do now when they have a national audience, because they because electorally speaking, they need to bring back the suburban voters, many of them women, many of them college educated, many of them, while conservative to a certain degree on economics and a certain degree culturally, still are kind of liberal or tolerant when it comes to their ideas of community. You know, a lot of them, you know, don't worry about gay marriage and a lot of them and they don't and they don't want to be seen as being tagged as racists for supporting the Republican Party. So they bring out Tim Scott, who is a friendly guy, you know, speaks well. But if you really listen to him, it made no sense. Yeah, no sense at all. I mean, their their theory was that if a black man is saying that there's no racism, that you can't argue with that fact. And that's yeah. how myopic that their thinking is as it relates to this issue. And it's really sad for America, you know, that you could it basically it was no different than Mark Meadows parading out this girl named Lynn who worked at the Trump organization that I got her the job trying to refute my position that Donald Trump is a racist, right? I mean, when I was at the House Oversight Committee, I thought I was stating a fact. But his job was to convince the American people that Donald is not a racist by parading out the only black employee that was inside the 25th, 26th floor, Right. Um, as I'm not, now, I'm not talking about security or doormen. That's a total. I'm talking about people that worked, you know, inside the Trump organization. She was the only one. And so when Mark Meadows, you know, paraded her out there like a prop, that was supposed to convince the country that Donald is not racist to the same extent that Tim Scott tried to convince the American people, right, that America does not have racist issues going on right now, despite the fact every single day you see another young black man, you know, being killed or some of these other issues. And it's it's not just, you know, of course, it's not just the police violence. You know, we see this in income income inequality. We see this with, you know, the vaccine rollout in a lot of places, not everywhere, but in some places. I mean, what Tim Scott is doing is called performative politics. It's anecdotal, you know, and, 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 and I thought Natalie, our, our writer, wrote about this, really got it because, it, you know, it's a cliche now, but I can't be a racist. I have a black friend. Right. So and that's exactly what the Republican Party did. We can't be a racist. We have one black senator, you know, and, you know, uh, and, and virtually, you know, the House is all white as well. It's but anyway, they found the, the one guy uh, of a figurehead. They, they could put there. And, you know, it, I, I, I wish it may be really interesting one day if Tim Scott could really talk about how he sees this and whether he, you know, how he could not see himself 
as being exploited in this fashion. I'm shocked he allowed himself to be exploited in the first place. But David, I want to thank you uh, for your time, for your insight. Truly eye-opening. And again, um, thanks for coming on to Mea Culpa. Oh, it's it's a pleasure talking to you, Michael. And, and, and I, I love the fact that you have this inside perspective that you know the rest of us now benefit from. <laughs> I'd like to be able to wash it out of my head. But thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, David. And now for today's Mea Culpa. It is fitting that the Facebook decision should be handed down on the same day that Liz Cheney writes an op-ed imploring the GOP to reject the lies and conspiracy of Donald Trump. They are both two sides of the same coin. But in attempting to silence Cheney, GOP leadership is effectively saying that the truth is what we say it is defined by Donald J. Trump. The zeal to punish Cheney for saying out loud what needs to be said speaks volumes. House Republicans refused to discipline Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene for spreading dangerous and sometimes bigoted conspiracy theories, instead giving her plum committee assignments. They have been mostly quiet after revelations about Matt Gates for alleged disgusting sex crimes that surfaced. And Gates still sits on the Judiciary Committee. But Liz Cheney's willingness to tell the truth about the integrity of the nation's democratic system is apparently a scandal worthy of extraordinary punishment. If you wanted me to pinpoint when the rot and destruction of Trumpism jumped from host to a vector of conspiracy, it was here and now. Liz Cheney may very well represent the last stand for rationality in a party overtaken with a new variant of Trump derangement syndrome. Only for the moment, it seems there is no vaccine and Trumpism will continue to devour the GOP and our two-party system. Call it an intervention or call it an inflection, call it whatever the hell you want. But here and now, our democratic system is truly in grave danger if Cheney can be driven from her leadership post. Let's hope cooler heads prevail. And thanks for listening. Hey, movie lovers, who needs a theater when you have Pluto TV? Grab your popcorn and your streaming device because free movies are here. Pluto TV is your home for movies. Great movies are playing anytime in over 20 exclusive movie channels of action, horror, rom-coms, and more. Watch hits like Saving Private Ryan, Pretty in Pink, and Charlie's Angels all for free. No signups, no fees, no contracts. Ever. Download the free Pluto TV app on any device. Maya Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Maya Culpa, nothing but the truth. 